Please turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews 12, Hebrews chapter 12, and as you're turning there, um, pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace, we thank you for your mercy, pray that you would be with us this morning, that you would settle our hearts and minds, help us to focus on your word, speak to us that you may convict us of our sin, compel us to faithfulness, and encourage us by your grace to be pleasing to you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses... Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. There are many metaphors in the world for life. These are illustrations we see which compare life to a whole host of activities, circumstances, seasons, tragedies, plants, animals, even the weather, storms of life. And we often find these tidbits of worldly wisdom and foolishness on all sorts of trinkets you find in gift shops and tourist traps like mugs, pins, bumper stickers, doilies, airbrush pictures, motivational posters, tie-dyed t-shirts that read, Life's a garden, dig it. (laughs) We see these metaphors, and though um, we may find a principle of truth in one of them once in a while, for the most part they are foolish, vain, and sometimes immoral, but we would expect that from the world. The Bible, however, has several metaphors and figurative sayings that pertain to life in this world and that are intended to help us understand God, the world, and our faith better. And though most of them, if not all of them, should not be interpreted literally, they all should be considered seriously and soberly. Uh, For instance, uh, Jesus calls us the salt of the earth and the light of the world. He also tells us to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. The Apostle Paul tells Timothy to minister like a soldier, an athlete, and a farmer. And though Paul doesn't intend for Timothy to literally minister as a soldier, athlete, or farmer, he does expect him to make the connections, to see the implications and apply them to his life and ministry. And this is what the author of the letter to the Hebrews expects of his readers when he tells them to run the race that is set before them. In fact, the Apostle Paul uses this metaphor of running a race in several places in the New Testament, such as 1 Corinthians 9, Philippians 3, 2 Timothy 4, and in the book of Galatians. Now, just like uh, most of you 
do not run, and uh, many of you may have never ran a foot race in your life. I am also under no impression that the Apostle Paul woke up every morning, girded up his loins, strapped on his sandals, and went for a five-mile jog through downtown Ephesus, or whatever city he was living in at the time, um, nor that he regularly raced in the senior men's age group of the Isthmian Games. Um, however, uh, like many of you, he didn't have to personally be a runner to observe those runners and athletes in the ancient games training and competing against one another to see a clear metaphor and illustration of the Christian life. He himself had vivid memories and personal experiences of toil and suffering and striving towards a goal. He knew what it was like to train and discipline himself for the purpose of godliness. He knew what it meant to deny himself the comforts and privileges which the people of his time and place and many believers around him freely enjoyed. He did this in order to be more focused, more diligent, and more effective in his mission and his life. And this is exactly why we see this metaphor of running a race used throughout the New Testament to illustrate the Christian life. And why the author of the letter to the Hebrews wrote it here in our text for this morning. See, the letter to Hebrews was written to Jewish believers in the midst of persecution. And they, for the most part, were tempted to not commit fully to trusting in and following Jesus Christ. To believe the many lies about Jesus, that he was something other than the Messiah, such as an angel or a prophet. Or to turn away from Christianity entirely and return to apostate Judaism. So the author to this letter writes in an apologetic style, proving that Jesus is superior to the prophets. He's greater than the angels. He's better than Moses. He initiates a superior covenant than the law of Moses. He is the great high priest of a better priesthood than Aaron, which provided a perfect sacrifice, a perfect redemption, and a perfect intercession for his people. He explains all this and lays it all out in his argument in the first ten chapters of the book, and then he calls them to a full assurance of faith based on the faithfulness of God, the faithfulness of the Old Testament heroes of the faith in chapter 11. And then he says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The whole letter is an argument and a call to persevere in the faith. And after having expounded upon the greatness and the glory of the person and work of Jesus Christ, the author of Hebrews now gives his readers four principles by which they are to faithfully run the Christian race that is set before them. Four principles in our text. One, run in retrospect, run unhindered, run your race, and run after Jesus. First, run in retrospect. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, this therefore in the beginning of chapter 12 is a hinge upon which the whole book turns. 
from the arguments, themes, and doctrines previously expressed concerning the true nature, character, and works of Jesus Christ in chapters 1 to 10 to the practical implications, applications expressed in the commands to faithfully follow, obey, and worship Christ. So broadly speaking, this therefore is looking back to the previous 11 chapters, but specifically is looking back to the 11th chapter, which provides us with the examples of the heroes of the faith in this roll call of faith. Um, Speaking of the patriarchs and the prophets, the great heroes of the faith throughout the Old Testament, and he gives us, these are like peaks, peaks in in the mountains of God that call us to press on in our faith to, to emulate them. Now, conversely, as we look at the Old Testament, we also see bad examples as well. But the principle here that we are to look back is that history matters. And the writer to, of the letter to the Hebrews understands. He understands this impact of reminding his readers of the great examples of those faithful saints who have gone before them, to compel them to imitate their faith and to press on in the race of faith. We, however, in, in this day and age, we, we are even more blessed because not only do we have those examples in chapter 11 and the whole Old Testament, but we have an additional 2,000 years of church history that we can draw upon for examples of how we are to live faithfully. So we not only run in retrospect of the Old Testament saints, stretching all the way back to Enoch, who walked with God and was raptured out of a sin-cursed world because of his faithfulness, but we also run in retrospect of the apostles in the early church, who, because of their faithfulness, the gospel spread from Jerusalem and throughout all Judea and Samaria and throughout most of the Greek-speaking world by the time the last apostle died. Is uh, early church history that gives us example of faithful saints who stood firm in the midst of fierce persecution. And they proved what the early church father Tertullian said, that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And from those early days until the present day, there are thousands of examples of faithful saints who, as back in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 16 says, they desired a better country. That is a heavenly one. And therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God. For he has prepared for them a city. They were not consumed with the things of this world. But the things of the next. And because that they ran their race so well. We would do well to acquaint ourselves with the history. Of those martyrs and missionaries. Of those faithful saints throughout church history. There's a reason why in the time of the Puritans that Fox's Book of Martyrs and Pilgrim's Progress were two of the best-selling books besides the Bible. And and in many ways they still are um, because they, they show these examples of Old Testament saints of martyrs who, who sacrificed, who denied themselves and took up their cross and followed Christ. Old Testament saints who knew, understood what the Christian race is, as, as John Bunyan clearly explains in, in his allegory of the Christian race. 
the, the, the point of us looking back is that history matters. And, and the fact that every local church, every believer here has a history. We all have a spiritual context. Uh, we, we didn't just fall out of the sky one day or, and, and, or spring up out of the ground and, and trip over a Bible and fall into church. We, we come from somewhere. This church comes from somewhere. We are a part of God's fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. That he would make Abraham a great nation. And through his seed, all of the nations of the earth would be blessed. We, we look backwards and we see this fulfillment of Jesus' degree to build his church. And that the gates of Hades would not prevail against it. We all are a result of the ministry of the Holy Spirit from the day of Pentecost until today. We are all living proofs of prophecies fulfilled. History matters. God's history of redemption matters. The history of Christ's church matters. And the history of the saints that have gone before you matter. So as you run your race of faith, we run in retrospect of those saints who have gone before us. Second, we run unhindered. Continuing in verse 1, he says, Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Right here, this lay aside. This is, this is a, a participle here can, um, noting continual action. We are to continually be laying aside these weights in our lives, these encumbrances that hold us back in our race. And the sin which clings so closely. There are these, these are different hindrances. There's two different things. There is the sin and then there is the weights. So the weights are not sin because he notes the sin. But the weights are other things, other encumbrances. Any bulk, any weight, any impen- impediment that hinders us. And in the context of, of this letter... This most likely refers to the traditions or religious and cultural traditions that the Hebrews were, were prone to fall back into. What, what the Apostle Paul calls the shadow, the shadow but not the substance of the faith. As you see, the, these, these Jewish believers to whom this letter was written, they, they, were, they were being persecuted and, the, and they, were, they were especially prone to falling back into the habits of ceremonial law-keeping of Sabbath and feast observances, of religious and cultural tra- traditions. And this is, this is why Jesus said, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Many of these traditions and these habits and these behaviors, they weren't necessarily sinful, but they led to sin. And they slowed down the Jewish believers. We, however, in our present day context, uh, most of us are Gentiles. Most of our Gentile believers. We also have our encumbrances of religious and cultural traditions. Many of you come from families and backgrounds of false religions and cults that you were saved from. Things that have, for many years, shaped your habits and your behaviors. 
You have traditions, and many of these things still weigh us down in our race um, through conditioning. We, we've been conditioned in many ways um, to, uh, to obey traditions, to um, do things that aren't necessarily scriptural. And whether it be a misguided conscience or misunderstanding of scripture, these are encumbrances. Um, we think of things like forms of worship or dress or ministry methodologies, principles and practices for um, how we live our life, like dating or marriage or parenting. Um, things which have an appearance of wisdom, as Paul said, and they sound biblical and they may even apply in many circumstances, but they aren't mandated by Scripture. Um, just real quick, listen to what Paul says in Colossians 2. If you want, you can turn there. Colossians two sixteen to 23. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity of the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. These are our practices of, that may seem to be the the way to be holy, or may seem to have some sort of wisdom. Um, but they are nonetheless encumbrances because they shift our focus off of Christ and they focus on ourselves and, and just doing things, going through the motions, uh, checking the list. So we have encumbrances that are from tradition, from worldly wisdom, from cultural practices, misapplications of scripture and then we have encumbrances just by the way we live our lives uh, we all know what it is to waste time um, there's things that we do that aren't profitable hobbies we have that aren't sinful but they aren't profitable and this is an area that we must exercise caution and wisdom because when we evaluate our time and how we use our time in the exercise of our Liberties is, for the most part, a matter of conscience. Um, there are some principles that we can apply, but we can't go around pointing the finger or comparing ourselves to others. And uh, those principles that would help us is that to understand that on the, on the road, uh, on this road of faith, this walk of faith, there's ditches on two sides. There's a ditch of legalism and then the ditch of licentiousness. Um, those are two principles that we can follow, that, that we be careful not to fall in the trap of legalism or, or licentiousness on the other side. Other principle is, is having love for our brother. As Paul said, that he would rather go without eating meat for the sake of his brother. He would forego any liberty for the sake of his brother so as not to cause the weaker brother to stumble. And then there's a principle of levity. 
that we, our activities, the way we use our time is not, it's not vain. It's not levity. It's not useless. It, there, there's, there's something of substance to it, something profitable. Um, you know, we, we, can, we can spend, we are free to spend 12 hours watching documentaries about fishing or whatever, but I'm not sure if that's spiritually profitable. I, but you can be the judge of that. <laughs> so, but we, we need to evaluate our time because how we use our time does matter. It does matter. Um, Apostle Paul in Ephesians five fifteen to 16 says, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise making the best use of the time because the days are evil. He also says to the Corinthians, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. See, the, the attitude of the Christian life, it, it isn't what is permissible for me to do without falling into sin, but the attitude is what is spiritually profitable and most pleasing to God. How you spend your time and money does matter. And whether it is sinful or not, or just unwise, or spiritually unprofitable, know that your schedule, your activities, your relationships, and your checkbook, to one degree or another, reflects the condition of your heart. And it affects your progress in running the Christian race. So we are called to run unhindered by continually laying aside every encumbrance which slows us down and the sin which clings so closely. What is this sin that he is talking about that clings to us? Um, These are those life-dominating sins that beset us, entangle us. Things like lust and, and covetousness and greed and substance abuse and anger. Things like sexual immorality. However, underneath all of these sins, there's idols that lie at their core. And then behind that idolatry of man is the sin of unbelief. And this is the primary sin and the problem that the, letter, the author to this letter is addressing. Behind every idol which the human heart worships is a driving force of unbelief. Unbelief that does not fully trust in the fact that God is all-powerful that he knows all things, even the things we don't know about ourselves, and that he is ever-present, that he is even amongst us right now. Behind every idolatrous, idolatrous desire is the unbelief that does not trust that God is sufficient, that he will provide for my every need, or that he will fulfill the longings of my heart. It is the unbelief in God's nature, his character, his works, and his promises, which creates the void in the human heart for Idols to fill. For example, one, one of the most common life-dominating sins which, which many people struggle with and, and many people here is anxiety. Why, why do people get anxious? Because they worry about the immediate future. They, they're fearful of negative outcomes and, and so there's very little peace and contentment in their lives. And so in these instances, what, what, what's... What's driving, what, what's driving their heart? What is the desire that's ruling their heart? It's the idol of control. They want control. They bow down to the idol of autonomous, sovereign control over every little detail of their life, which promises to bring them peace and security. And why do anxious people worship the idol of control? 
It's because their unbelief doesn't fully trust in God's sovereign control over every moment and molecule in the universe. And they don't fully trust in his promise of Romans 8.28 that he causes all things to work together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. This, this imagery that the, the author of Hebrews talks about, these, this sin that clings to us, so closely clings, it, it entangles us. It, it's, like, it, it's like vines wrapping around our, our feet. It, it, it's like running through a patch of thorn bushes with your shoelaces untied. It, it, it tangles you up. It catches you up. That's the sin of unbelief that resides in all of us. That's why it clings so closely. That's what causes us to run after idols. So we run in retrospect. We run unhindered by laying aside every encumbrance. And we are to run our race. Run your race. Verse 1, and let us run. Once again, another participle here. Um, indicating a continuous action. Keep on running with endurance the race that is continually being set before us. This, this word be, behind, underneath race, is not race. The Greek word is agona, from which we, we get the term agony. And it could be translated as, as striving, a struggle, a fight. He just tells us to run this, this struggle, this striving. Run the race that is set before us. And there's two aspects of this race. We, we, have, we all run the general race of the Christian life. But we also have our own specific race because every one of us is unique. We all have unique circumstances. We all have a unique history. We all have unique abilities. And so we're not all the same, but there is a general sense in which we do run the same race because we're all moving from one point of justification to glorification and we're being sanctified. And in that race, we we follow what God has revealed to us in, in, in the Bible, his revealed will that all of us, that he desires that every man be saved, that he desires that we be spirit filled that he desires that we be submissive to the rulers above us, that he desires our sanctification in 1 Thessalonians 4, that he desires that we be self-sacrificing in Romans 12, that when we suffer, we would do so in a Christ-like manner, that we would be settled in our circumstances, in his plan for us, and that we would be satisfied with his will for us. But then we all have our specific race, and those are according to our specific blessings and trials. Many of us have, have abilities that others don't. We have resources that others don't. We have time that others don't. We have life circumstances, family, relationship that others don't. So we all have a specific race. And so we, we, don't, we don't need to fret about God's secret will for us because we are unique and specific, and he does have a secret will for us, but we focus on his revealed will. And in focusing on his revealed will, we, we will carry out his secret will. James says, 
in chapter 4, 13 to 15, it says, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. We, we can worry ourselves to death about what will happen tomorrow or next year or 10 years from now. And, and that doesn't mean that we don't plan um, or, or that we fly through life by the seat of our pants, but that we focus on God's revealed will for us. Jesus said, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. We all have our specific race to run. And in running that race, that specific race, we don't compare ourselves to others, but we focus on what God has revealed to us and we seek to be faithful every day. And we let those secret things, as Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, the secret things belong to the Lord, but things revealed belong to us and to our children forever. So that we focus on the revealed will of God. And in doing that, we will run our, our specific race and our general race, and we do so with endurance. This race that we run, it's not, it's not a sprint, it's a marathon. And we can easily focus on ourselves and, and, and beat ourselves up about our progress. But we don't look at our lives and evaluate our sanctification in terms of days and weeks or, or else we would be greatly discouraged. We focus on being faithful every day, but we don't so much evaluate our sanctification in terms of days and weeks. We don't evaluate our progress in terms of days and weeks we evaluate our progress in terms of months and years and then we focus on being faithful every day so we run in retrospect we run unhindered and we run in we run our race with endurance finally we run after jesus looking to jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was being set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We run because of who he is. We run after Jesus because he is the founder and perfecter of our faith. He is the initiator of our faith. From beginning to end, salvation is a work of the Lord. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And we are being completed and conformed to his image. He is the main point and the object of our faith. As our verse of this church, our motto on the wall, Colossians 1, 28, 29 says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Paul continues, he says, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. 
This is what Paul runs his Christian race for, that not only would he be conformed to the image of Christ, but that he would minister to others and help them to be conformed to the image of Christ. And he focuses, as he focuses on Christ, he compels others to focus on Christ. And we focus on Christ because of who he is as our Savior, our object our, of faith, our, the main point of our faith. We focus on him because of what he did. Because he endured suffering at the hands of sinners. And not only did he endure suffering at his point of redeeming us, but he endured a life of temptation, a life of shame. A life surrounded by sinners in a world full of sin. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus being God knew us from, from eternity past, every detail about us. But he also knew us experientially as he took on human flesh, as he experienced the sin around him as he was tempted in every way that we are tempted yet he did not sin so we run after him because of who he is because of what he did because of why he did it he did it because of the joy that was being set before him he endured the cross because of the joy that was being set before him what was this joy what was this this joy that, that brought him such suffering, that brought him to lay his life down. What was this joy? It was the joy of redeeming a people, of redeeming us, of redeeming the church, of bringing us to God, as First Peter 3.18 says. That he would redeem a people for himself, a love gift to the Father of worshipers. And because of this joy, he despised the shame of the cross. Despising the shame. What was this shame? We think of, of, of Roman crucifixion. Crucifixion was uh, a form of execution that the Persians invented, but the Romans perfected it. And why, why did they perfect it? Because it was a deterrent. It was a very useful deterrent against disorder, against insurrection, against traitors, against anyone who would stand against the law of Rome. And so they would take, they would take the prisoner, and there was a ceremony. There was a ceremony. They, they would take him, they would drag him out to a public place, they would flog him, and every, every practice, every event within the whole ceremony of crucifixion had a point they would pull him out they would strip him of all his worldly possessions they would flog him with a, uh, with the cat of nine tails they, they would they would get the blood flowing on the back of their back they would tear open their back and humiliate them and then they would have them carry their cross go to the place of execution this public place uh, near a road where everyone would see, where they would be made an example. And then they would be stripped naked as if there was not enough shame of having everything taken from you. 
you yourself would not only be humiliated, but everybody that knew you would be humiliated. And they would shy away from you. They would deny you. They would deny that they knew you. They would deny any association with you. And people being brought to the place of, of crucifixion would often fight and scream and plead not to go. And there they would be crucified and they would stay upon that cross for days, for weeks, as the birds and the animals ate the flesh of the dead victim. And this was all to heap shame, to heap shame on the perpetrator, to heap shame on their, any of their acquaintances, any of their family, any, anybody that knew this person. This was a message. And Jesus went to the cross despising this shame, this shame, all the shame that the world could possibly heap upon a person, Jesus Christ despised it. And he despised it for the joy that would be set before him to redeem a people for the Father. All that the world could heap against him, he despised it and he scorned it as if nothing. This shame, what is this shame that you bring upon me? Every one of you, you probably know a bit of shame that the world tries to heap upon you as you go about and try to live your life faithfully in the world, in your workplace, in your family, and you hear the mockery, you get the jabs, you are looked down upon as you seek to be faithful, as you seek to witness, and the world tries to heap shame on you. And we, as our Savior, are to despise that shame because it is nothing. And it is nothing because of the joy that is set before us. We run after Jesus because of who he is, because of what he did, because of why he did it, and because of where he is. Because he is now, after Enduring the cross and despising the shame, he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Hebrews 9 says, 9, 24 to 26 says, For Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as a high priest enters the holy places every year with his blood, not his own. For then he would have to had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. One sacrifice, one time, secured redemption for all those who would trust in him forever. And after doing so, he took his seat on his father's throne, having finished his work. Further in Hebrews chapter 10, 11 to 14, it says, Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. 
the high priest would get up in the morning. They would go through a ceremony of ritual cleansing. They would go through a ceremony of getting dressed. They would consecrate themselves for service, standing, waiting, inspecting the sacrifices, receiving it, butchering it according to the law, offering it, and then wash, rinse, repeat, go home, eat, sleep, wake up, and then do it over and over and over and over and over again. But Christ offers himself once and cries out, It is finished! Tetelestai, complete, perfected. This word has been found in many ancient documents on legal ledgers, accounting ledgers. It means paid in full. The debt paid in full, completed, finished. He offered himself one time, once for all sinners, and then he sat down. His work being completed, and there he is still sitting. And so we run after Jesus because of who he is, because of what he did, because of why he did it, because of where he is, and because of what he is now doing, interceding for us, advocating for us, pleading for us to the Father. Read what, what John says in 1 John 1, 9 to 2, 2. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Not meaning every person in the world, but for the sins of all the elect in the world. He is the righteous and perfect advocate, the perfect lawyer to plead on our behalf. Because his sacrifice was perfect. And that's how he advocates for us constantly turning the Father back to his perfect blood, his perfect sacrifice. This assures us, this gives us confidence to enter into the throne of grace. And this is the one we run after. This is the one we fix our eyes on. This is the one we hope in. This is the one whom we are being conformed into the image of. As Paul writes to the Corinthians, he says in 2 Corinthians 3.18, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. We, we don't focus on the things of this world. We don't focus on ourselves well, because within ourselves is only corruption and sin and death. We do acknowledge the things in the world. We do acknowledge our sin, but we confess, we repent, and we fix our eyes on Christ because it is in His image that we are being conformed into and it is from His picture that, that we see the glory that, we, that will be ours. John, once again, 1 John 3 says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, 
because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. As we look at the glory of Christ and and we see him for all that he is and all that God has revealed him to be in his scripture, we see his glory and we want to be like him. We want to be pleasing to him. We want to see him. We long for him. We look for him. And, And this is how we run our race, looking to Jesus. Because every one of us will see him. Rest assured, you will see him as he is. You will see Jesus Christ in all his glory. And not only will you see him as he is, but you will look upon him with new eyes. Many of you are very close to seeing your Lord and your Savior face to face. Many of you are very close. And all of us are closer than we think. The time is short. Life is a vapor. We're here one moment and we're gone the next. And we, we, we don't know how much time we have. Here today, gone tomorrow. And this ever-hastening reality of standing before Jesus Christ, this ought to motivate us to spend more of the time and the resources we have in this life for his sake than for ours. Because his next life is close at hand. It's coming. It's, it's near. C.T. Studd said, Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. This hope and thrill of seeing Jesus Christ face to face, this is the greatest motivator for faithful endurance in in running our Christian race. But for some of you here this morning, as it stands right now, you will not see him as the loving Savior who says, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. You, You will not hear that as it stands right now. But you will see him face to face. But rather than your Savior, you will see him as your judge who says, depart from me, you who cursed into the eternal fire that has been prepared for the devil and his angels. But God does not wish that anyone would perish, but that all would repent and turn to him. He is patient with you. And it's his kindness that leads to repentance. But his patience will one day run out. Don't wait for tomorrow. Tomorrow is the devil's day. Today is the day of salvation. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Turn to Jesus. Turn to him now. And if you know Jesus, run after him. Honor him. Glorify him in your life so that you would live according to what you are designed for, to worship him as his creature. Father, we thank you for this text. We thank you for your word that tells us who we are, our purpose in life, what you desire for us, how we may be pleasing to you, how we may be faithful to you, how we may honor you. Lord, please remind us of your words. Please fill, up, fill us with your scriptures. Please guide us that we would honor you the rest of our days, no matter how long that is, if it, is, if it be tomorrow 10 years, 
50 years from now, that when we see you face to face, we will be pleasing in your sight. It's in your name we pray. Amen.